The demand for energy is accelerating like never before. New sources are emerging and established ones are evolving. Collectively, all sources will provide the fuel needed to support future global demand. Here on the Energy Scale-Ups podcast, we explore and learn about the people and companies solving today's problems to produce tomorrow's energy needs. Here is your host, Jose Solis. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Halliburton Labs. Halliburton Labs works with early stage companies to help accelerate their growth by providing access to operational expertise, mentorship, as well as financing opportunities as companies prepare to scale. Enter to win their weekly giveaway at halliburtonlabs.com forward slash giveaway. Hey there, listeners. Welcome back to the Energy Scale-Ups podcast. I'm your host, Jose Solis, and today I am joined by the founder and CEO of C6 Capital Holdings in New York, Mr. Mark Rossano. Did I say that right, Mark Rossano? Yeah, that's good. All right. Mark, if you wouldn't mind, please give the listeners a little bit of your bio and background and what you specialize in. Sure. Well, thanks for having me on. It's great after this nice Thanksgiving break to get back into it. So I'm Mark Rosano. I founded C6 Capital Holdings back in March of 2019. It got me out of the city, thankfully, which proved important once COVID hit. But the three things that we're really focused on right now, one of them being private equity. So we are in the final rounds of raising our first fund And there we invest in infrastructure. So energy infrastructure is one of the big focal points. And that really goes across the, runs the gambit. You know, we're looking at things from what we like to call well to wheel and find solutions along the way. One of the ones that, and and I won't take credit for calling Texas because I didn't call the Texas freeze off. But what we were really calling for was that there is a shortage of baseload. And we continue to stress the system by relying more on peakers, which is just, again, when you get a spike in electricity demand, you have to rely on these short cycle gas turbines to come on and fill that void. So we want to look at things and invest in things that are trying to solve some of those problems, especially on the power side. And then on some of the other ones that we're looking at is on the fertilizer, the biodiesel, renewable diesel side and ways to take essentially products that are thrown off when you look at refining, when you look at processing, there's a lot of things that are thrown off, ideally sulfur, that would actually do very well to fix some of the problems on a caloric value when you look at our grains, when you look at the fertilizers used. So again, trying to find solutions for some of these products. And then the other two pieces, one of them, I have my own YouTube channel where we talk energy, macroeconomics, geopolitics, And when you look at frac spreads, looking at the activity within the US, and then we also do consulting and insights for clients through there. And again, we're already doing the work for the investment side. So try to give some of that work to people to help them with make their business decisions and in terms of what's happening on a global scale. And is most of this on the domestic or international side? So right now we're looking in the domestic side, fund two, you know, fingers crossed is going to be on the global side. So one of the things that we've we've actually had a, a lot of activity in fund one, so that has given us some confidence to increase it in for fund two and look abroad. Some of the key areas that we want to focus on, broadly speaking, is Central and Southeast Asia, the West Africa, and then Latin America. And the reason why each one is very specific for those reasons, when you look at Southeast Asia, one of the things that we've identified was that, look, a lot of people are, lo- are now, not to say that they weren't woken up before COVID, 
But before COVID, you started to see things leaving China. And then once now, if you could say supply chain, everybody knows what you're talking about. People are looking to diversify supply chains, trying to get out of China, not so much get out completely, but just start to break things down to make sure that there's redundancies in the system. And we think Vietnam, Malaysia, Indonesia is very well positioned for that, especially Vietnam. And then on the West African side, there's a lot of things that used to be deemed stranded gas. And we have found some interesting technologies, some interesting offtake that makes it much less stranded at this point. And we're seeing right now, based on the prices in Europe, in Asia, that there is demand for natural gas. And there's a lot of reasons why we should tap it. Because even though, you know, and this comes to the debate, are, is natural gas a bridge fuel? Is it a fuel? of the future. And we really look at it as a fuel of the future and something that can solve a lot of problems and create a lot of redundancies and still remove carbon, still act as good stewards of the environment, even though we're going to use some of this natural gas, because we do have products that we're looking at that capture the carbon, that capture some of the additional sulfur, and then ways to use that to make other products that are biodegradable, renewable, and again, kind of keeping with that theme. Interesting. So here in the States, is there any certain regions that you probably would say are more of a hotbed of activity than others? Yeah, it's an interesting question because there are some spots where, and it, and it comes down to politics as much as anything else. And one of the things that we've been looking at are hydroelectric dams. So 65% or so of the hydroelectric dams in the US are owned by mom and pops. And just think about how the U.S. was founded. You know, we use run of river for a lot of different things, whether that be mills, textiles. So now you have these assets that are, have been there for maybe 100 plus years. They've been refurbished. They've now essentially those facilities have gone away. And now these families that own the facilities are looking to sell. Maybe they're coming into FERC relicensing and they don't know how to do it or they don't want to do it. And this becomes an opportunity because we can come in. A lot of these assets haven't been upgraded. They are, or with the most recent technology. And there's ways to come in and optimize. And one of the things that we're looking at is, is really the Northeast, the North uh, parts of the Midwest, and then the Carolinas, Virginia region, or that Middle Atlantic, because we want to be sensitive to how, because you know, <laughs> depending on who you're talking to, you know, hydro is deemed green for others. It isn't deemed green. So we want to look at places that are friendly, that are, are looking at this as a solution. It's hydro. So based on a lot of these rivers, it's base load because we really want to focus on the base load side and less on the peaker. And for those that don't know, base load are things that just are going to run 24 seven. So nuclear, you're like you're not turning off a nuclear reactor. You may take it down because you're, you're doing some repairs, but you're always going to have that online. So we want to look at more baseload solutions versus just short term in terms of whether that be coal or natural gas. Coal takes a, a 24 hours or, or longer to turn on where a short cycle gas turbine is deemed short cycle when it can turn on in three hours or less, which is why those are typically behind both wind turbines or wind farms and solar. And so would you be specifically looking to invest in, let's say, for instance, like the hydro dams themselves, or would you be investing in the companies that provide the technology to upgrade them? And it's interesting. So we're in negotiations with a company that is looking to do both. We're looking to buy the dams. We want to own them outright, which is nice because there's not a lot of things in this world. You can say that once you sign on the dotted line, you start getting paid. 
because they throw off cash the moment that that signature happens. So we're looking to buy the dams themselves. We have partners that are going to help us operate them just because they've been doing this for years. And we want to make sure that they're you know, on an integrity side, structurally speaking, are they sound? How can we optimize? And now we're also speaking with a company that is using sensors and artificial intelligence to help make sure that things, you know, where's the river line? Where's at what height should the gate be? How do we optimize the amount of electricity that we're going to be putting through? And then there's also a question on fish. How many fish are in there? Do we need a fish ladder? Do we need to manage the wildlife to make sure that we're not impacting things in a negative way, but trying to you know, do things that are good for, for everyone involved. And again, trying to create these relationships because then if, if you make the people happy around the area, you make the agencies happy, they're going to uh, want you to buy more assets. They're going to want you to be more involved in the community, which again, leads to bigger things. Because the moment <laughs> the moment they somebody hears that you're buying a dam and you're serious, there's a lot of other phone calls that can, uh, that can come across. Do you mean like other sellers or? Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. People that are like, hey, I heard you're speaking with Bobby and you know my dam is only six miles upstream and uh, it might be something good. And it's also good for us because if we can get more economies of scale within ro- one location, we can utilize more people across a smaller subset. So then again, you're saving on labor, you're saving on equipment. So those are things that we're looking at. So it actually works in our favor and then it, it helps them because they might want to look to sell. You know, for some of these individuals, this is their retirement and they're looking to cash out. Some people want it almost like an annuity where they want to get paid out over time, which again is fine with us. So we're very flexible with the way the deal is structured. And it's interesting because they also aren't really going back and negotiating with the electricity companies or the power providers. And and there's a lot of things that we can do to incentivize, again, us getting paid a little bit more, but also delivering more power for the additional cents per kilowatt hour. What other type of infrastructure deals would you be looking at in addition to these hydroelectric dams? So some of the ones that we're looking at are also on the refining side. Those are ways of taking either waste or some sort of, you know, whether that be wood products or as we all know with oils and trying to find, you know, how are they making renewable diesel or biodiesel because they are chemically different? You know, what is some of the other byproducts coming out? You know, there's one of them that is creating wood vinegar, which has a lot of interest in terms of just a natural fungicide and a natural way to keep pests away from from crops, which is, again, interesting. And then one of the other ones, which is infrastructure with the way we're looking at it, is on the fertilizer side. So one of the things that we've been really honing in on since 2019 was that there was going to be broad food shortages and that food was going to become a huge problem. And this is something that we started seeing in 2019. And then obviously in 2020, it accelerated with a lot of different floods, a lot of droughts. And there's now this broad shortfall of fertilizers. And, and now fertilizer is interesting because there's a problem. And when you put down too much nitrogen, Nitrogen can blow off. It ends up in rivers. It ends up in waterways, and you can get algae blooms. So the idea is, how do we minimize some of these different opportunities? How do we minimize some of these different these nitrogens? And one of the things that we found is sulfur. So one of the products that is currently used has a lot of salt in it. And for those that that read the Bible, putting salt in the ground is not exactly a good thing. 
and you typically can destroy the quality of the soil in general. So you, typically when you put down a lot of these sulfurs, you have to manage how are you watering it? How quickly do you water it after to make sure that you can get some of that additional salt to drain off? And this particular product actually uses zero percent sodium, which is nice because it just means that it can be in pellet form. It can be in liquid form. It can go down at any specific time. And then the sulfur gets consumed by the bacteria and creates sulfates, which then is absorbed into the root system. And then the roots can then carry a lot of the nutrition and faster, cleaner for them in terms of just the speed in which it moves through. And, you, and this also increases caloric value. So not only have we had issues with just the amount of yield that has come out from our crops, but the caloric value has actually been going down. And that just means that the value of the crop, you know, what you get from, from eating something, you're seeing it degrade because that crop is being planted on something that, again, is trying to absorb minerals and fertilizers and it's not getting it or it's coming too fast and they're trying to cycle it through. So this also creates an opportunity to increase the amount of yield. That's This is from oils because if you use this and then create soy oil, you're going to get more. Same with corn. You know, so there's a lot of opportunities on the oil side, but also just in terms of our nutritional value as well as for livestock. So those are things that we're looking in. And you might say, it's like, well, how is that infrastructure? Well, it's a solution for byproducts coming out of processing at refiners, which throw off a lot of sulfur. You know, sour gas also throws off a lot of sulfur. And this is a way to provide that solution, but also to then increase our overall, the amount of food that we have available to us. That's interesting. So I guess, what was it in your research as you started to develop your investment strategy for C6 that led you to pursue the options that you're pursuing? So right now, one of the things is initially I, I started a hedge fund. We were doing the hedge fund thing and the public markets are a little crazy. I wrote an <laughs> article of why the stock market is a circus. And, and I still hold to that where it has a life of its own. It's something that I don't really believe in, in terms of some of the valuations. So we wanted to look on the private side and say, look, there's a ton of projects that are overlooked. And when you look at why are they being overlooked? Well, we're looking at dams. We're looking at projects that are small in scale, that are micro to the small side. And when you look at some of these huge funds, these funds, unless it's a $500 million deal, they're not interested. And then when you look at banks, the regional banks have been consolidating. And there's this mismatch of where we can actually provide capital and have an impact, not only just for our investors, but also for a problem that we've seen. So that was why we wanted to start on the small scale side and really start to aggregate some of these projects and put them together, especially on the hydro side. Now, one of the reasons why we saw this is we want to find long-term problems, you know, things that are going to have that are problematic and ways that we can fix them. But again, they're not going to go away tomorrow and there's going to be a lot of growth behind it. You know, when we look at the amount of electricity we consume, you know, we're, we're taking down baseload capacity, but we want people to use electricity for heating and we want people to have electric vehicles. And it's like, okay, so you're increasing the demand, but you're not increasing the supply. I was like, all right, that's an inherent problem. So right. let's figure out how to fix the supply. You know, is there ways that we can do that? Are there ways? And, and we're evaluating solar deals. We're evaluating how natural gas, LNG, LPG, we're trying to look at ways that are longer term solutions. And then on the other side, we've been really honed in on the commodity space 
and that's really going to the grain side and where we saw fertilizer shortfalls. Now, we saw fertilizer as an issue before the energy crisis. So this is something where we've been talking about fertilizer as a focal point since literally March of 2020 of like, this is going to be a problem. There's a lot of shortfalls. And when you are short yield, so if you plant corn and you expect to get you know a specific yield, that yield is coming in a bit light. You could try to use some fertilizers to, to increase that. You can try to do things to boost your underlying yield. And again, those are things that we were seeing, but it's also a global issue. It's not just a US problem. It's not just a Canadian problem. It's something that is going to be adopted overall. You know, one of the companies we're, we're working with, you know, they're, they're getting a lot of interest from Australia because this would provide a solution where they would use less sodium that they're currently consuming, less nitrogen. And when you look at what's been happening, it's essentially bleaching the oceans, hence the Great Barrier Reef. And this specific product would not do that. This is something that is 100% biodegradable. It's 100% organic, which is a nice little stamp that you can throw on. And it's also much cheaper than the alternatives because you're taking a byproduct from sour gas, from refining, and then using something that it can be consumed by all. Hey, it's Mark LaCour, Editor-in-Chief here at OGGN. Sorry for the interruption, but I wanted to share a couple of things for December. First is no industry mixer. We'll pick those back up in January. Second, for myself and for my entire OGGN team, we want to wish each and every one of you happy holidays, a Merry Christmas, a wonderful New Year's. Everybody stay safe. We're really looking forward to hitting 2022 with all of you. So thank you for being listeners. Have a great holiday. Have a great end of the year. What's the process for getting deals in the door? I mean, what conduits do they come through and and how does that work? Yeah, it's funny that for anyone in the investing community, there's never a shortage of deals, but there's always a shortage of good deals. So there's always, you always want a good management team. So the management team is always going to be pivotal because you need people that are going to execute. And the way we try to structure things is always looking at equal incentivize. How do you incentivize people to operate? So we want to make sure that we're fully aligned where if we do well, they do well. If they do well, we do well. And we want to make sure that that is very clear from the very beginning. And then you always, you always want to have a eye on an exit strategy, whether that be IPO, a sale, you know, some sort of deal that is done with investors prior. And when we're looking at that, it's always, how is the management team, but also what is the product? You know, is there growth in that product? Is it stale? Is it stagnant? Or is there something that's ready for a rejuvenation? I mean, we've been building dams for how many centuries? So we're not reinventing the wheel, but we see an opportunity where things that have been fallen by the wayside a bit, and there's a shortfall in the market that is not being fixed in any short period of time. And we do see an increase in underlying electricity prices. And then on some other deals that we're looking at, it's also, what is the product? You know, is it a product that has global appeal? Is it a regional product? And we're very, very focused on, and this is a huge thing, it can't live or die based on politics. You know, a lot of people will look at, oh, well, it's making a ton of money. It's like, well, yeah, but 80% of it is coming from government subsidies or you know, what happens if you get a change in government or change in view of this product and all of a sudden all of those subsidies are either gone or cut in half and now you have a product that can't stand on its own. And I think that's one of the key factors when you're looking at, you know, renewable green 
can they stand by themselves? And if they can, how long? And what is the growth trajectory? And those are some of the key pieces. But one of the things that we've always talked about that has fallen away in this system is the importance of people. And everyone's like, oh, well, I can fire that guy and hire two people that are cheaper to do his work or her work. And it's like, well, but why are they doing it that way? You know, what did they learn? What what are the connections that they have? And, and we really want to hone in on, on the people side and really try to drive that home because I know P has gotten a negative view in the world based on their idea of coming in, slashing, burning, moving everything to China and then selling the business. And we're trying to, again, move away from that and look at things that are more incentivized on a longer term basis because we see growth and we want people to want to work with us. And you can torch someone once and yeah, you might make a lot of money, but nobody's going to want to deal with you again. And that's, again, as the saying goes, what it's a lifetime to build a reputation and a minute to lose it. So oh, yeah. that's, we were always very sensitive to that. Understood. You mentioned this, that there are some sectors of renewable energy that you see are you know getting a lot of their revenue through government subsidies and things of that nature. Which ones do you feel are probably like the highest risk for not being able to stand up on their own? Should those government subsidies dry up? Some of the ones that we've looked at are EVs. Some of the EVs, the market is maturing and there's some opportunity now with where electric vehicles are and how that's progressing. So that's something where people are going to make their choice. And we're seeing people choose some of these newer EVs, especially when you look at Ford, what Volkswagen has done. So that's something where I think it can really stand on its own. But what about the infrastructure? And when you start looking at these huge tax incentives for putting up a supercharger. Well, why can the supercharger be used for other cars? Because some of them for Tesla can't be used in others. And that's where you see some of these tax incentives, but who's paying for it, which is the taxpayer. And then how much are you actually making back in terms of making this available? And it's always this chicken and the egg where do you need the EVs first, or do you need the network first, or do they happen simultaneously? And there's a certain amount of simultaneous that has to happen, but it, it also has to be done in a strategic way because you need a certain amount of charging stations every 150 miles. You need a certain amount to make sure that people aren't sitting there and waiting. And I think on the infrastructure side, there's a lot of projects that look great on paper, but when you start going through them, you're like, mm, this looks a little fishy. And that we've seen that with some of the biodiesel, some of the renewable diesel in terms of what are their structures. But when you're looking at refining, it's an arbitrage. You're buying your feedstock for X, you're selling your end stock for Y, and what are you making in between? And how much of what you're making is coming from tax incentives? And that's where there's some that make sense. There's some that don't. It usually depends on what their feedstock is. But when you start turning to solar and wind, that's where you get to a point where these incentives just are never going to pay out. You're paying all of this money up front for something that is still heavily relied petrochemicals and other types of fossil fuels to either make it, create it, and then they don't work when you need them the most. And I think that's something that has to be considered when you're building them out because there are places that solar works beautifully. And there's places that it doesn't. The same can be said for wind. And th those are things that have to be considered because right now they're like, oh, well, there's all these tax incentives. So I'm just going to build solar farm here, wind farm there. And it, it doesn't matter if it makes money because I'm going to make money with my tax credits. It's like, okay, but 
now the grid is expecting that. And if the grid is expecting 36,000 megawatts from this and you're only throwing off four, well, that's a problem. <laughs> and what is the backdrop? Oh, it's, well, it's short cycle gas turbines. It's like, okay, well, what happens if the gas isn't available? And what happens where if, and when you start looking at winterizing these projects, take Texas for an example. So you have wind that isn't blowing. You then have natural gas that isn't operating. So now you have this whole, all these assets that are sitting there useless. So then you can turn around and say, well, they should winterize them. It's like, okay, well, you can winterize, you can winterize the natural gas, but what if the gas isn't available, which then means you have to have a diesel backup. So now in one project, you have three backups. You have the initial, which is wind or solar. You then have the natural gas, and then you have the diesel to back up the natural gas. So then it comes to a point where that's too much money because now you're paying for three things to back up how many gigawatts. And that's where I think nuclear comes into play. And I think we have to reassess our views of nuke because there have been a significant amount of improvements from either micro-sized pebble reactors, thorium is being tested in China. And there's, I think, a lot of solutions that can come from that. The question then that comes down to, well, what are those tax subsidies? And then people will always say, well, I want it, but not in my backyard. So then you, you come back and forth with where some of these projects can really get some legs. Yeah, nuclear is something that I find very interesting, especially because the low amount of carbon that is emitted through those projects, right? And it's just the, our, the emissions, if you will, right? So I think you're right. You know, we could all probably get behind it as long as it wasn't in our backyard. Or if we didn't have the stigma, right, behind nuclear energy. But something that I read was that a lot of the incidents that have happened in, re in years past were because a lot of that, those infrastructure, those designs were really, really old and they hadn't been updated in a long time. And obviously now we've got much better technology, design technology. We've got lessons learned and, and things that we can apply. So I, I think you're right. I think that we should definitely be reconsidering our position on nuclear energy for the future as it could be a big windfall for us if we did it right. What other forms of energy do you think would be beneficial for us to reconsider or maybe take a deeper dive or, or, or invest more into? Some of the things that we've looked at, and, and everyone likes to talk about carbon and carbon dioxide, but what about sulfur? What about methane? You know, There's a lot of things out there that create damage when you talk about greenhouse gases outside of carbon. And so one of the things that we've been looking at is on the methane side. So there's a couple of companies that, that have methane sensors and they can go essentially on the pipeline, they can go on the facility and they will monitor how much methane is being released if there's any being released. And there's a lot of these, these micro or modular systems that have been created for either harvesting natural gas and or LNG or turning it into LNG. And, and I think that we ha really have to reassess how we view natural gas and propane. And I think LPG specifically, when you think about the flexibility of that molecule, how it can go into a petrochemical facility, it can go to heating your home, it can go to cooking in your home. There's a lot of flexibility with the molecule. It doesn't have to be frozen into a liquid state like natural gas. So it's cheaper to move. There's a lot of opportunities within that. 
And we have to look at what is the underlying goal and how do we do it in lockstep? Because we can't jump from A to Z. We have to go to A to B to B to C. And I think that there's been this this hope or this massive jump from one to the other. And I think we have to look at this realistically. You know, what do we want to replace? You know, do we want to replace coal or do we want to replace, you know, wood? Because when you look at burning on a, on a global level, because obviously the atmosphere, it connects us all, you want to try to get after those low-hanging fruit. And if we want to really address some of these, I think na- making natural gas available and affordable is the biggest key point because at some point, you know, everyone's going to be green until, you know, they, they scream uncle. And we've seen that in emerging markets. We've seen that where they're going back to high sulfur fuel oil because the alternatives are, aren't cheap enough, or they've gotten so expensive when you look at LNG landed into Asia. And we want to, to again, find ways to make more available. And I think that that is some low hanging fruit that can really come into India and Pakistan and other parts of Central Asia, as well as Southeast Asia, and create an ecosystem that, again, is sustainable, is repeatable. And again, if you want to entice, let's call it a Samsung to come build a facility there, I can't tell them, oh, you, well, you'll probably have power 70% of the, of the time. Is that okay? Yeah. You know, yeah. They're going to say no. You know, So you have to make sure you can provide enough power but at the same time, you want redundancy, you want affordability. And I think that natural gas and propane to some degree, but natural gas can really deliver that. And, and then I don't have to rely on coal. I don't have to rely on dung being burned or other types of remedial forms that is, you know, isn't managed. And I think that there are ways that you can do that in, in utilizing sensors, managing yourself. And, and again, being good stewards, but be also being realistic about where we are and where we want to be. And I think that's one of the key things that we have to reevaluate. Yeah, I like that. So one last question. Why? Why why go down this road? Why pursue this career or these projects? What is your why? So there's you can go on any social media, you can you can turn on any TV station. And, you know, the Republicans will blame the, the Democrats. The Democrats will, re- will blame the Republicans. People will be like, oh, this is a problem. Oh, my God, this is so terrible. It's like, okay, but what are you doing to fix it? Like, so I will sit there and complain with the best of them. I mean, who, who doesn't <laughs> want to complain? <laughs> so it's great. But I want to be the guy that is saying, look, I'm not only just going to complain, but I'm also going to try to solve it. And I'm going to find And if I can't do it, I'm going to incentivize and invest in the people who can. And I think that is a big piece of where things are going. And we're also seeing a shift. We've seen the pendulum swing too far. Over the last 40 years, we've exported our supply chain. We've exported manufacturing. And I think you're starting to see that swing back. And not to say that all of it's going to come back to the US because it won't but you're going to see it go into friendlier nations. And then when you start building this out, I've always had a very big geopolitical bent. You know, if you want to incentivize people to not only be your friend and your ally, you also have to make it economically appealing. Absolutely. And what better way to do that than, look, I'm going to come in, I'm going to invest in your country, I'm going to build manufacturing here, which means that I'm going to increase the quality of life, I'm going to give people jobs, I'm going to give people, you know, again, just trying to build up a community but it's also selfish in nature because I'll make money off of it. We'll be able to sell this back in the U.S. But then when you look at the U.S. in general, why are we, well, you, know, you could say it's like, well, you're building in Vietnam. Why are you building here too? It's like, well, 
I think some capacity is going to come back to the states as well, which also means that there's going to be a, a bigger call on the grid. And we want to find ways to fix that. Now, we'll, we'll look at transmission. We'll look at roads and ports because you also need that capacity to come in and connect yourself you know, the global economy. So that's my why. My why is I want to be part of the solution. And I think yeah, I also have a little chip on my shoulder, which is why I like Tom Brady, you know, who <laughs> picked, you know, in the sixth round, you know, I, I wasn't allowed in, I didn't have the right pedigree. I, di- I didn't have this, I didn't have that. So I'm like, all right, I'll just go do it myself. So there's also <laughs> a little, a little edge to that of if you don't want me in, in your, if, to play with your games, I'll just beat you at your own game and I'll go do it myself and, and find people. But I've also found a great network. And, and I think for anyone that's been in this, in any industry long enough, it's easy to meet people, but it's hard to build a network of people that you respect, that you take advice from, that you find, you know, you can share ideas and, and on an ethical and moral standing, which I think this, this world lacks more and more of that takes time. And again, after 15 plus years doing this, we've built a network with me and my partners of people that we trust, we believe in, and, and we can, again, create some of these solutions and not just you know pillage and burn, but to build something that's longstanding and can throw off money for investors, for us, for the people we're investing in, and again, deliver a product that's, that's needed in the world. Awesome. Awesome. Mark, how can listeners get in touch with you, follow you, learn more about you know C6 and what you guys are doing? Sure. You can reach out. My email is just mrosano at c6capitalholdings.com. You can find me on my website, c6capitalholdings.com, or you can find me on Twitter at MarkFNY. Keep it simple. I'm typically on there pretty often, and that's some place that you can find me. Or the Primary Vision Network is another place on YouTube. So if you go to YouTube and just go to Primary Vision Network, we're there or on any podcast hosting that you use. Awesome. Thank you so much for being a guest today. Super great having you on. I know that you guys are going to continue to keep killing it. Congratulations on closing up your first fund. Best of luck with the next one. Listeners, please be sure to like, share, rate, review, connect with us if you have any feedback and make sure to connect with Mark. Follow him on his social media channels as well. Mark, thank you so much, man. That was a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. We'll see you soon. Okay. Thank you. You too. Join us again next week for another episode of the Energy Scale-Ups podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.